As the world is writing a new story of global kinship, Postmodern Missionary dives into what it means to be a missionary pushing against the heritage of colonialism. Join Reverend Katie Meek as she explores life and faith in Sierra Leone. Welcome back to the podcast. This week um, and this conversation is a really special one to me. And I think that once you get to listen, you'll understand why. Um, I invited my friends, Allie and Charles Curry, to come on the podcast and talk specifically about racial reconciliation, because these are people who I have seen live this in a way that I think is really compelling and gracious. Um, And it's an interesting time for me to put this particular conversation out, um, considering all of the conversation around Ahmaud Arbery's death. This was actually not planned, but it feels timely, especially because there are so many people who are starting to or continuing to wake up to the fact that um, this is something that our communities need. We we need to figure out how to reconcile um, because there are people literally dying um, because we don't do this well. So um, I hope that it's an illuminating conversation and one that might um, put you in, into contact or um, motivate you to um, continue doing some work around these themes. Now, I want to tell you about this couple. And so this is going to be a little bit of a longer introduction because um, Ali and Charles have become really, truly family to me. I, w- I kind of want to tell you how that happened. Before I went to Sierra Leone, I had started to be careful about the way that I talk about God's movement in my life. <laughs> partly because sometimes God moves in the exact way right now that I need. And other times it feels like God is sort of relatively absent. (laughs) But then before I moved to Sierra Leone, I had a missionary friend who said, you learn to rely on the Lord in a way that you never have and almost never have the opportunity to when you're living a non-missionary life. But when you become a missionary, you really learn to rely on the Lord. And That was my, that's been my experience that the providence of God really showed up for me. In fact, in the last conversation, you heard me talk about how um, when I first got to Sierra Leone, it was really striking to me and anxiety provoking and also hard that there was nobody on the whole continent that I had any history with. And so I started with the exception of my friend Lorraine and also a couple others that were um, several countries away that I had only known a couple of weeks through our missionary training. So I was started to kind of pray over like, what am I going to do? Lord, I need you to bring me some friends <laughs> bring me some friends, Jesus. And so I got onto our Freetowners group and um, put something out there about the Enneagram just to see if there was somebody who might, somebody in town who might also know something about the Enneagram. Really the translation of that is, is there somebody who will be my friend, please? <laughs> And there were two people who responded to that. One of them was um, Laura Kirkhoff, whom you've heard already on this podcast. And the other one was Allie Curry. And Allie said the same thing as me when we showed up. She said, look, I've been here a couple of months now. And I've, you know, just been kind of hunkering down, getting used to life here. And finally, I felt like the Lord was saying, you need to get out there and make some friends. And so it really was one of those things where it was like, she needs a friend, I need a friend. And not only did we both need friends, but we were also, I mean, like we're kind of soulmates, y'all. She reminds me of my little sister, Marty, like a mix between my little sister, Marty, and one of my best friends from back home, Melissa Turkett. And and then also she's a person of faith, but also she's she's one of those people of faith who um, can talk like really deeply about Jesus for a while, but also make a snarky comment, (laughs) which I kind of appreciate. And yeah, and then I met her husband, Charles, and have um, been able to walk with them through um, what I think will turn out to be a really important time in their lives and certainly important time in mine. Um, And they asked me to be their daughter, Ella's 
godmother. And um, so when that happened, it was like, okay, so you guys know this is like a serious deal now <laughs> because um, I'm not going to be somebody's godmother and not see them at least once a year. So, so you know, I feel tethered to them in a lot of ways. And, and the Lord, I mean, I just feel sure that the Lord brought her to me and I hope me to her. Um, so yeah, like there is, there, there is something, I mean, it's a, this just strange mystery <laughs> because sometimes there, the, the very thing you need, you feel like you're not getting it. And why isn't Jesus showing up? And then other times it's like, there it is here, here is, here is your need at the point of your need. Um, and it's just so much grace. So that was a long way to introduce my friend Allie, but, um, and, and certainly Charles too, like, they just really have become family to me. So I hope that you love their conversation and some of their story and hearing their wisdom. And you're going to hear Allie give you some definitions and um, talk through their their process and what they've been through and, and their own wisdom. So sorry, this is a long introduction, but I felt like this one warranted it. What to expect. Number one, this is a long conversation, so I've broken it into two. The things that we reference in here, I'm going to go ahead and put in the show notes. Like, for example, Allie's definitions. She talks through them pretty quickly. And I feel like they're, they're rich definitions that are worth going back to and really kind of digging into in your own work if that's something that you'd like to do. Over the course of these two weeks conversations, I'm also going to be giving you some other sorts of resources for how to do your own work when it comes to reconciliation. I don't have a whole lot of resources, but I have some people to at least point you to toward so that if this is something that you feel like the Lord's or that your conscience is um, pulling you toward, um, I can give you some resources of people who are doing really good work on this end. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. God bless you, friends. Um, and the Lord keep us together. Okay. Welcome to the Curries, Allie and Charles. Um, you guys each want to say hi so everybody knows your voice. Hi. That's Charles. <laughs> Hi, I'm Allie. <laughs> All right, awesome. Um, okay, so today, like, here's the thing about you guys. Um, we, I feel like we could probably have eight podcasts together <laughs> about different subjects. And um, so I want to talk specifically today about ra racial reconciliation. But another time, I feel like we're going to have to get back together and talk about um, adoption because you guys work for an orphanage. I just gave it away. I'm about to ask you that question. But um, so and you have some experience in history there um, and are passionate about that sort of thing, too. So also, I, f I feel the need for us to make the disclaimer that we were just talking about offline um, about the fact that do you want to talk about it? Or do you want me to about about the nervousness around like putting yourself forward as an expert? Yeah, so when talking about race, anytime, ever, I think I hesitate, especially as a white woman speaking about this topic that is one that you kind of only can experience through maybe being a person of color. I mean, we are talking about reconciliation, which um, luckily for all of you, I've brought my handy dandy definitions that <laughs> we can go over <laughs> so that we can all make sure we're sharing the language, but... Um, if you're not familiar with Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 5, so I like to feel prepared, and I like to feel like I'm listening to people who are experts, therefore when I speak I want to be an expert. So we're just, there's a lot of grace in this conversation, but I am a little bit anxious about that particularly. Mm -hmm. But um, I think one of the things, one of the habits is that, um, especially in the U.S., is that um, these conversations can be just that, just conversations, right. and that there's not actually work being done towards, you know, reconciliation or racial reconciliation. And so getting beyond conversations is something that's really important. But I think that there can be a tendency also for people who are living lives that are, you know, working towards that to assume, you know, maybe because they don't have um, particular degrees or 
certain expertise that they're not qualified to speak on things, but actually because they're living uh, lives that are working, progressively working towards reconciliation, I think that they are experts in a sense. Okay. So, all right, just to be clear, you don't necessarily have a degree in this. You have not written in any books. However, you are an interracial couple and you have done some intentional work around like racial reconciliation. Yes, I thought while we were speaking, probably for our listeners, it's important to note, I am a white woman and Charles is an African-American male. So we are um, by nature working towards this work because that's our home and that's our family makeup. But um, I think it's important for those of you who can't see us to know that's why we're passionate about this. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the surface level of why we feel like this is an important thing to talk about. Okay. Awesome. So before we get into all the things, mm-hmm. um, you guys are here living in Sierra Leone. Um, and wh- why don't you just tell us about yourselves? Uh, like what brought you to Sierra Leone specifically? So um, as you probably know already, I'm Charles, um, and here with my wife, Allie. Uh, we've been in Sierra Leone now. It'll be two years next week, I think. Next week will be two years. Um, and so what brought us here, um, long story short, it's just the Lord leading us here uh, through a series of very interesting, peculiar um, circumstances that began with a series of dreams that Allie was having four months into our marriage. Uh, She had this reoccurring dream for about a week or two, being pregnant with triplets. Mm. And it was cute in the beginning. And then after the second week, I was like, all right, I'm done with this. And so- (laughs) This is weird. (laughs) Right. So I jokingly said, um, while we were hanging out with some friends that, we would name our triplets Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm. And in less than a week, we get a phone call from a friend from church who was in Sierra Leone um, that she had met these three boys. And when she met them, the Lord just put uh, put us on her heart. Mm. And so later, when she made it back home, she was telling us about these three boys and she says, first, they're, they're triplets, mm. and their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's so this is, you know, a week or two after these dreams and after, you know, me jokingly saying what their names would be. Uh, and so we took that as something that the Lord was doing. There's no way this is a coincidence. Right. And from there, we began sponsoring uh, these three little boys. And the next year, we visited them. Um, in here in Sierra Leone. Here in Sierra Leone, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, we fell in love with the place, and the Lord really started putting on our hearts. You know, what would it be like to come and serve here and to, you know, do ministry here? And through 2016, 2017, um, the Lord brought an opportunity about um, through a partnership with our church and mm-hmm. the reigning season, which is the organization that we're working for now, um, that would allow for us to go out as missionaries, uh, as mm-hmm. representatives of our church, but also to uh, help start a new program for the organization. And so in July 2017, we moved over. All right. Yeah, and we didn't just come to crazy, to like chase a crazy dream that we had. Um, our agency really values relationship, and so we came to meet our sponsored kids, but also because there were several families in our church adopting from this orphanage, and we felt like one of the things, which we'll talk about this another time, that helps adoptive kids adjust well is that they see familiar faces. So we came to meet these kids who would one day become a part of our families in Jackson, um, and then we also came because Charles is a social worker, so we haven't said that part yet, mm-hmm. but he was finishing up his master's in social work and studying a lot about um, kids in trauma and a lot about community development. So he was actually equipped to do the work that we were asked to do, and that was a need. And so it happened, um, we feel really strongly that people shouldn't come unless there's a need that they can actually fulfill based off of their skill set. And right. so... Um, one of the things that our agency said we had a need for Charles was equipped to handle. So that's 
eventually the vocational path we we ended up coming on but it was also a series of um divine kind of uh i don't even know how to say it appointments from the lord that he kind of revealed right. the next steps so so in some ways like the discernment happened first but then there was an o- there were open doors that confirmed because you had mm-hmm. a skill set that actually met the need here right exactly. right that's an excellent point because i think a lot of people are like oh i want to go and do this thing and they may not actually know how to do it have any kind of expertise in it and it's pretty important like I, that's an easy way to do harm Um, yeah Yeah. like not knowing not meaning to you know but it is an easy way to do harm right okay so you you just use the word missionary so do you guys call yourselves missionaries and if so like what do you think of that word because that's part of the conversation that i've been having um with this podcast well ironically enough you sent us a list of questions so we could prep because we're both the type of people who need to prep right and that was like the hardest question for both of us to answer Mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily the questions about race um it was this word missionary because i think for us specifically we came to work in like coalition with a nonprofit here and there are so many people that come to just work for a nonprofit. So how do we differentiate as like an aid worker and or a missionary? So I think it's a hard word to use to describe ourselves, Mm -hmm. but it's been helpful that other people have used it to describe us. And then, I mean, of course, if you haven't been able to tell yet, we are believers. So we talk about everything through the lens of faith. And, um, I like, I believe that it's each of our responsibilities to fulfill the mission in which Christ has called us to do. Right. And this particularly happened to be the mission that he asked us to do. But there's a large element and proponent of our work. That's discipleship mm-hmm. of young, um, teenage aged, uh, kids in Salon. And so for that, I do think that that qualifies us as a missionary, but even, um, it's interesting enough. Charles and I talked about how that word missionary, even in our different contexts in the States, like me growing up in a traditional Southern Baptist white church, the word missionary means something really different than in the black church. So, yeah, I want to hear that. Yeah. Well, for one thing, I want to preface it by saying I didn't necessarily grow up in church. Right. Um, My family, we went from time to time. just lost power and um which is the thing that happens in Sierra Leone it's just life so um I we had to stop it real quick so that I could change batteries but anyway here here we are back we were talking about the definition specifically in your um experience in the Mm -hmm. African-American community in the states of what a missionary is right go ahead yeah so as I was saying um essentially to preface it from my limited experience, mm-hmm. um, and I'll repeat myself, limited experience yeah. uh, growing up uh, in church or not really going to church very much. Um, what I experienced was that missionaries or missionary was a term that was used, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't really used in the sense of like, going out to you know foreign countries or other countries right and doing work right um i can't necessarily give you an accurate description of what i think um that title was used for i just knew that the people that had those titles weren't people that were going out in that sense um now i think it may have been more so that they were going out into the community right um but when you talk about you know, internationally, like that wasn't, wasn't a thing. Wasn't really a part of the paradigm in the black church. Right. From my limited experience. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds to me like you, both of you have had, or maybe now have similar definitions of the word, which is you're just 
I mean, you're just essentially joining God and God's work mm-hmm. more right. than anything. Right. Um, and some, t- and, and I think sometimes and maybe always that, that means getting out of your comfort zone. It doesn't necessarily mean coming. Across yeah. The always. World. I think yeah. always. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, so, um, just fill in the gap a little bit about, I want you to talk quickly about roots, um, and, and your ministry there because you work for the orphanage, right? Right. And Allie, you host teams. Um, yes. and then also Charles, you came to start a program. So tell us about that. Cause I think it's great. Right. So, um, coming here, we initially came with the idea that we were wanting to start a program that would be like a local or, or domestic adoption program. So seeing Sierra Leonean families adopting Sierra Leonean children, which yeah. we still hope for and hope to see happening. Right. Um, but after a short amount of time doing research and really listening and hearing from the kids and the staff and other people in the community, we realized that um, that there were other needs that were more pressing uh, that needed to be addressed. And namely, that a lot of our kids were approaching, and for a few of them already were at the age where um, adoption isn't really an option for them, but they're, they are soon approaching the time in which they need to be kind of reintegrated into community life. Right. And so um, there's this new, maybe not necessarily new, but it's a trending thing within adoption, like orphan care um, circles of aging out, which is um, children reaching the point where they're too old to you know reside in institutional care right um and so for a lot of kids sometimes when work isn't done um on a preventative you know measure uh those kids once they age out they hit the streets and they're on their own right and so for a lot of them it means that they end up doing illegal things or uh, ending up in jail or dying at an earlier age all kinds of like really terrible things um, that we don't want to see happening to our kids or any kids. Right. Um, so the Roots Project went from domestic adoption to um, a transitional program for our older children. So the work that we're currently doing uh, right now is we started um, a transitional home. And so we have six kids in a transitional home currently. Uh, and our hope is to get several more transitional homes to serve the rest of our older kids but within that home we're aiming to teach them life skills just Mm -hmm. you know that they need day to day um but more importantly and Allie kind of hit on this earlier uh, we want to disciple them uh, because you know regardless of where someone finds themselves regardless of the kind of work that they find themselves doing uh, we really believe that if they are in Christ um and are abiding in him that they will have what they need to even in times of suffering and hardship to endure and persevere um, and to keep their integrity and keep their integrity exactly which um in any context is really really important yeah um and so that's what we're doing currently and then there are other things that we hope to do in the next several years um doing career development helping kids you know go to college and get vocational training and um different things like that so that's awesome yeah and you guys are house parents so you have six children in your home that's right six teenagers yeah we currently have six teenagers and a toddler so Mm. our lives (laughs) are really interesting god bless you guys Amen. <laughs> well, and another thing that I was thinking about while you were talking is uh, I, I um, minister in the prison, uh, in the juvenile prison as well. And one of the things I tell the boys, um, because it's mostly boys, is that when you get out, you may be rejected by your family, but you're not going to be rejected by the church. And so if you like the church is a place that you can go if there is nowhere else for you to go. Mm-hmm. And if you cultivate those kind of strong relationships, then what th- even if you don't have family, you have family. Right. Um, and so I think that's a really important um, piece of the puzzle for them, too. Right. And we we just have a deep rooted belief that every child, no matter what age deserves the ability to say that they've had family. Yeah. And, um, for kids who are 16 to 18, or even we have a kid who's 20 
the ability to say I have people who no matter what happens to me, I can fall back on them. That's yeah. something that in the States we take a lot for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, but here that's, sh- that kind of drives everything that we do is mm-hmm. the, the idea that every child is I deserves family and will thrive in family yeah that's wonderful okay so let's talk let's get to y'all's story and then some of the the work that you did before you came to Sierra Leone um how'd you guys meet you've been married for three years four Four years years. okay so how'd y'all meet um so we met as I think we met when we were seniors in college or maybe juniors in college. Um, I was a Young Life leader. For those of you, I don't know if you know what Young Life is, but it's just a ministry where you go into high school and you make friends with kids and you are just a soft place to land. And so um, I was doing Young Life at a school in Jackson, Tennessee. Um, That school is, the makeup of that school is maybe uh, 97% African American. because there's a really interesting uh, racial divide in the public school system in Jackson. I was uh, one of two white people on my Young Life staff serving in kind of a situation and environment that I was obviously the odd man out. And um, I became very, very good friends with another Young Life leader who um, is a huge part of my like journey into racial reconciliation. Her name was Melanie. Um, And she we were trying to recruit uh, guy leaders to become young life leaders um, with us. And she was dating a guy. And so she asked her boyfriend to come and her boyfriend brought um, his best friend, which was Charles. And so I saw Charles from across the room at our young life meeting. And I told Melanie, um, that guy's really hot. (laughs) uh, He had a girlfriend. Um, And I did not break that up, but uh, (laughs) he had a girlfriend at the time, so I just kind of dropped it. Um, But actually, that comment spurred a lot of conversations with Melanie and I, So, um, which started this journey kind of for me. But we eventually, Charles and his girlfriend broke up, and we had graduated college by that time, and we just... I went away to Charleston to work and I thought I wasn't coming back to Jackson. And then I came back from to Jackson and Charles was just all of a sudden there Mm -hmm. at all the things that I was at and not because of me, but just because, Mm -hmm. and then it just happened from there, I guess. So we dated a year and a half. We're engaged for seven months or so and then got married. So wonderful. Wonderful. So you guys are from the South. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are an interracial couple. So I guess my question is, um, h- how has your relationship been received by like early on and also now by your family and friends and, and the community there? Do you want me to do this? Um, I'll start. I am always like, I want to be very honoring to our families who love us dearly, but I, we also want to make sure that we speak truth. Mm -hmm. And so there was definitely some hesitation there at the beginning of our relationship specifically. Um, my mom was pretty, um, hesitant at first, but she remained consistent in, I just need to meet him. And cause I am from East Tennessee, which is uh, six hours away from where we were living. So once she met Charles, we got to know him. She was very welcoming. My sister and her um, husband have always been very welcoming. My extended family um, is varied in their responses. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about white people is that they'll never tell you that they're racist or even that they have a prejudice, which is different than racism. Right. Um, but I would still probably identify our, ourselves with um, working through some of those prejudice in my particularly my extended family um i believe that racism often happens because you have a set of negative experiences with people right and in some degree that allows charles and i to have compassion because we understand that their set of experiences is not ours um and the only way that we can kind of help them rid themselves of that thought process is is to give them a new set of experiences right and so it is not our job to eradicate racism in their hearts but it's our job to like continue to be gospel filled and allow the lord to do that work in them Mm -hmm. and so but 
I think our community, it's a very different. I mean, Charles will tell you. Well, Charles can tell you. <laughs> yeah, I think the um, where Allie is going is like the community that we um, have been a part of mm-hmm. in the time that we've not only dated, but like known each other um, is one that is very accepting, but also um, very familial. So like for us, um, I mean, there are other interracial couples. You're talking about like church community or friendship Primarily community? church community, okay. but also even in the Jackson community itself. Oh, okay, okay. Um, and this is Jackson, Tennessee. I realize we haven't said that yet. Yeah. Not Mississippi for anybody that is wondering. Um, the community itself, you know, we've traveled around quite a bit, um, even in the South. And there are a lot of places in the South where, you know, it's like black and then white and like you don't really have many other it's very segregated demographics. oh you right mean, okay. but also that it's pretty segregated as well okay um you don't have many interracial couples or mixed race couples and things like that but jackson even though it's a smaller community it's like seventy thousand people um the like interracial communities and families are you know sig- there's a significant um mm. Number? Um, yeah, number of interracial um, mixed race families. Huh. And so I think s- having an increasing number mm-hmm. of you know interracial couples and families makes it less of something that people, I won't say that people don't have issues or prejudices, right. but because they're seeing it more, right. you know, they're kind of more desensitized to it, so to say. Right. Um, so it helps. But, I mean, there have been you know, moments in Jackson, we've been out to a restaurant and, you know, I go to the restroom to wash my hands and someone makes a comment to her. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there was um, at a movie theater during our, on our honeymoon and in Jackson. So two separate occasions. um, We had like some really nasty looks and comments that were made. Um, And then I think my first time visiting Allie's hometown, so she's from Knoxville, East Tennessee, <laughs> and uh-huh. someone Allie's was very face. upfront. I, I want to say they were under the influence of some mm. some substances, mm-hmm. but they still they were really uh, upfront, direct, really nasty comment. Mm. Um, so there have been you know situations where we've encountered racism, but yeah. um, for the most part, I would say our experience has been a lot better than you know most people might say or right. think what it might have been yeah and this is obviously not a hard and fast rule but our experience has been that it's traditionally white men who have a problem and speak vocally or african-american women yeah. who speak uh, vocally so okay. obviously not a hard and fast rule and not about everybody but that is the case um but i did have a very good friend um sit me down when charles and i were beginning to date and say here are some of the stereotypes you're going to face. Here are some of the questions people are going to ask you. Here are some of the things people are going to think about you. And that conversation was super helpful in helping me understand what I was saying yes to. Right. And what, like, what our relationship was speaking to other people without actually speaking. Right, without them knowing. So how did you guys, how do you handle that? You just ignore it? You just say, do you, do you push back or you just kind of let it ride? Well, the two of us are not very pushback type of people. Right. (laughs) Um, I think one of the things that we've learned that's super helpful is um, when there is racism that presents itself, it's your job as the person who shares that same uh, ethnicity or race to do that. So if there is a white person giving us a hard time, it's my responsibility to confront that. Versus in the same way. So if there's a black person or African-American or however they want to be identified, giving us like a difficult time regarding that, then it's Charles's responsibility. That's always been our case with our families. Mm -hmm. Um, I always handle my family. He always handles his family. So far, it's worked great for us. But we haven't really, even with our own families, um, confronted it directly in a very brash kind of way because we also in our marriage, in our ministry, we operate by the rule of like, 
are they able to hear you and ready to hear you and are you the voice who needs to be the one to say it Mm. and we're just not sure if we've been given the discernment regarding that in specific relationships um but there has been times that we've said things just not not to a woman in the movie theater who right who doesn't necessarily yeah know us right that makes sense So you both have like a history of in- intentional recon- racial reconciliation work. Okay, I can say that word. Um, intentional work around racial reconciliation, and I'm and Ali, you shared a little bit about how that came through Young Life for you. Um, but I'm wondering if you kind of came to that separately, or if it was something like um, that uh, you were both starting to be passionate about before you got married. I mean, how did all that kind of come together? I think it definitely happened before we got married. Um, we, I've been a part of a church that we're both a part of now, but I've been a part of this church for 10 years that I was, um, I went to as a freshman in college that started asking these kinds of questions. Um, and I think one of the, um, kind of like catalysts in helping me figure out how to take these from thoughts to action was moving um to working at young life and building even a cross-cultural friendship with my best friend melanie is that you kind of have to be willing to ask some questions and put yourself in a spot and so it definitely happened before we got married but i think because we got married and because we ended up together it gives us more reason to sustain that work because now it's not just this thought it's our lives right. forever so right yeah but before you hand the mic off Allie I want to know where that came from for you like where was the seed that said I, I I feel like this is work that I'm supposed to do I honestly I think part of its personality I think part of it is the fact that I'm the kind of person who asks questions mm-hmm. and so one of the the most helpful things I think you can do as a white person and this is like probably answering a future question and answering this one is Mm -hmm. to create um a like a racial biography so like when is the first time you experienced interacting with a person of a different color and then how did that continue to grow as you got older and then how did that lead you into what you're doing now and so um when I started doing Young Life I actually just volunteered to bake cookies Mm -hmm. and was like I knew that this ministry was important but I felt I felt like it was specifically important for people of color to be doing and so I felt like my role was just to empower them to be doing that work and so I was I volunteered to the Young Life staff to like come set up chairs and come make snacks for club and then the next thing I knew I was a Young Life leader and I was being asked to pick up a girl on Carol Lane and if you know Jackson which most of you won't Caroline is like kind of like in the hood right and Mel- my friend Melanie who we weren't friends at that point was like wait you're going to Caroline I'm gonna come with you <laughs> and so she came with me and we picked up um my very first young life girl and I think just my love for for that girl and then my relationship with Melanie my love for Melanie and having like her feeling seen and heard and the more I got to know her the more I got to know her story and it was never pity but it was more of like she's really being treated with a lot of injustices and people are acting like that doesn't exist and so I felt like it was important for me to do that work not because I was equipped but because I loved people who were being affected by it and in my like that's one of the things that I say all the time is like reconciliation cannot be done for someone else it it can't be done it's not something that we do for someone else because if it is then we're rooted in the wrong right place but it's it's something that we do that that we're motivated for love of all of God's children Mm -hmm. and so I don't know if that answers the exact question but I think I think for a long time in my life when I finally sat down to, to write a racial autobiography kind of thing, the first time I recognized my whiteness or the first time I was interacting with people of color was back when I was in first grade Mm -hmm. and like the interactions that I had with those kids and then continuing through um, my 
like adolescence and childhood, I realized that a lot of my interactions were based off of this kind of unjust system being at play. Um, And I think when we're a believer, or even if you're not a believer, you want justice for all people most of the time. And so that motivates you. And I think it motivates people differently. Mm -hmm. But for me, it meant that I've got to be a part of this work. And, but that has taken a myriad of different feet as the years have gone on. And I think it'll continue to look different even as I parent a a daughter who is a woman of color and her story. So I think it's ever changing, but yeah, I don't know if that answers. No, it totally does. Um, so I, I do, Charles, I want you to talk, um, after Charles talks though, I do want to talk a little bit more about what you mean by we don't do reconciliation for people because I'm interested. All right, Charles. So what's your history around this kind of topic? Um, so I think, I know you asked Allie about like where the seed came from. Yeah. So I will kind of build it around. So I'll get to the seed, but mm-hmm. first I'll kind of talk about the soil Okay. Uh, that I feel like was semi-teal before the seed right. came. We're getting poetic. Um, All right. Um, so growing up, um, I was always um, a kid, a person that just really loved other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say I was pretty extroverted as well. But I remember, you know, the area I grew up in, in our city um, was predominantly white. There were only a couple other black families at the time. Um, but then when I went to school, especially when I got around to middle school and high school, um, the s- schools were predominantly uh, my high school, not middle school. Uh, my high school eventually became predominantly black. Mm-hmm. Um, my first semester, freshman years, like maybe 60, 40. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because of some changes that happened in the school system, mm-hmm. um, by the beginning of my sophomore years, like 90% black. Wow. Um, but all that to say, I've, I think I always had a desire to just, like, I want to be with everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I want to be with, you know, my black friends um, and to get new black friends. But I also really love white people and want, you know, more white friends. And to just be able to be in one place with everybody all at once. Right. Um, so fast forward to when I came to our church. Um, at the time... I was looking for a church home, so I'd say I'd been a believer for about a year or so, mm-hmm. uh, but hadn't really found a church that stuck. And Melanie, who uh, um, Allie's been referencing, was really trying to get me to go to City, which is the name of the church. Um, and I was like, "No, I'm all right. I'm not. I'm not going there anywhere but there." Because and because it it was like known to be. It was just that, so I transferred to our university, um, I think my sophomore year, uh, going into my junior year of school, um, and it's just different. Like, it's a predominantly Southern Baptist context, which, even though I had limited experience with church, Mm -hmm. my experiences were either all black or, like, charismatic, Mm -hmm. and so it was, like, the furthest thing from anything that I was familiar with, and I was like, there's no way I'm going there. Um, but I eventually ended up there and after going there, I remember being at a place as a social work student wrestling with, you know, faith and like the work that I was doing. Right. Um, cause there are a lot of ways in which it kind of overlaps. And so I was having a tough time with that and I was really wanting to speak to somebody, like have someone older with some wisdom, like talk with me about it. And, uh, one of my friends suggested that I speak to the pastor and again, from my limited church experience, like, if you're not a member of the church, there's no way you're talking to the pastor. Like, right. what? <laughs> um, and long story short, the pastor agreed to meet with me. So we spent like eight weeks meeting at his house in the afternoons. Um, and he introduced me to this thing called CCDA, which is Christian Community Development Association. Mm. So did a lot of reading about it, a lot of conversations about it. And it was there that I first was introduced to the concept of reconciliation Mm -hmm. or racial reconciliation. And 
that later that year we had an opportunity to go to the national conference for the organization and when we first got to the conference they're having a big plenary session so it's like everybody just a general session and there's worship and then like several speakers um you know doing presentations and when we first walked into that auditorium it was the first time that i felt what had been inside of me like my whole life this is what i've been longing for Mm. it's white folks and black folks and asian folks hispanic like Mm -hmm. everybody under one roof worshiping god um having hearts to that are longing for this same reconciliation Mm -hmm. and i just felt like i was home yeah and so over the course of those few days things that i heard and learned uh, i realized that it put words to what i've been you know kind of longing for and wanting deep down all my life and so once we came back from that conference um I knew that this is what I wanted to do and what I wanted to pursue, you know, f- for the rest of my life, essentially. Yeah. Um, and from there, um, like Allie, mm. we also started dating. So this <laughs> like our first like really big one on one conversation happened following that conference. Oh, wow. Um, and so I think it was within two weeks of that conference that we officially started started dating. Um, but on that note, like our marriage and our relationship has been one of the biggest and will always be the biggest reconciliatory work mm-hmm. um, that our lives, you know, for both of our lives. Yeah. Uh, but from there, not only our marriage, but also our friendships and relationships as well. Right. Um, Essentially all the fruit of your relationship together. Exactly. And the community that comes around you. And right. I mean, almost any interaction at all. It's there. It, right. It's always there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that's really beautiful that like the Lord did it and you separately and then brought you together <laughs> to do it together. I love that. Um, all right. So what form did that reconciliation work? Like you've already talked about it a little bit, but like coming together, what form did it take at home? The work that you did? Um, we talked about this a lot, actually. So one of the th- the things that we did separately is like, we're both separately teaching in our church regarding this topic. So I am co-teaching a class with Melanie regarding what does it mean to be a white person in a multi-ethnic world? So we're teaching, Charles is teaching another class about like grief and all of those kinds of things that, um, he's teaching people who are experiencing grief that it's in relationship to their color and their experiences regarding that. But I think specifically, how our ministry looks in our home, I think is best described as like our dinner table. Mm -hmm. And so for us, it is super important that our home is a space where all people feel welcome. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like so cliche, but it's actually an intentional work. Like you have to make sure the food that you cook, Mm -hmm. the things that you um, have up in your home, the decorations that you have, um, are a space that's welcoming both and and i say both racial reconciliation is not like just black and white but our context leads itself to that right so um like we we learned really quickly when we got married like okay well i need to make sure that we have these spices in our home that are gonna make when these people come, you know, not these people, but like if Charles is inviting his friends over and they're having hot wings and macaroni and cheese, like he needs to have hot sauce readily available. There needs to be some things that I wasn't used to having in my repertoire available. And so, and then even in our home, the pictures on our walls, like all of those kinds of things, are those like sparking conversation and being hospitable or are they like, um, making someone feel uncomfortable does it look so foreign and so really creating an environment that's going to be um hospitable to both but also one of the things that i think is and and it's really hard to talk about in just this small amount of time but whiteness is often equated with normality Mm -hmm. and so even in our home we've found that like our home is going to look more white 
or more like me, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. unless we're making an intentional effort for it to look like both of us. Right. Even down to like the furniture we pick and the color schemes that we use because we will look at houses sometimes and we'll be like, that was a black person's house because of the dark colors that they use or the furniture. There's like a style that goes with that. So it's really interesting. I'm a very visual person. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to me. Charles's house looks like if there was a catalog in my head of what an an African-American family's house looks like, that's what their house looks like. Mm -hmm. And my house growing up looked really different than that. Right. So like, how do we merge the spaces visually? How do we merge the spaces at our dinner table? How do our conversations reflect both? And how do we, we make sure no matter where we live, we always ask ourselves the question, no matter what city we're living in, is this a part of the city where both people can come and are, and when we walk around the neighborhood, are we going to see people who look like both of us? Wow. So it's, it's intentional yeah. Even though it sounds really like, oh, no. we're just making our home available. No. Yeah. And so um, it's interesting because I, um, like, I'm, I'm doing this all out of order. Um, this episode will probably air in, after, you know, 10 episodes or something like that. But I just recorded, like, the very first episode. And um, in that, um, I talk about how culture is embodied. And like, that's what it made me think of. Like, when you walk into a space, your body feels something because of the culture of the space. Mm-hmm. So um, I just love that you thought about, I mean, I think it's a perfect example of how, um, uh, of, of how culture permeates almost everything. Mm-hmm. And um, intentional work around inclusion also means that what's on your walls matter mm-hmm. and the spices in your, that's so awesome. So we were talking about what racial reconciliation work looked like at home. Do you want to say anything about that, Charles? Or was that, I know you guys organized yourselves to who gets to answer what. <laughs> We're semi-organized. Yeah, yeah. you seem quite organized. All right, well, then let's move on. So I think the next question that I gave to you guys is, uh, what form does it take now? Because here you are in Sierra Leone, right? Um, which is a predominantly black country. Um, and so I would imagine that that has changed the um the dynamics a little bit Mm -hmm. yeah so I think even I'll say even before this you know before the questions came Mm -hmm. I think this has been something that we've thought about you know since we've been here um I think when when we're talking about you know racial reconciliation in Sierra Leone Mm -hmm. um I think that it has to there are two things that two places that it has to start. One, I think we need to remove the racial and just look at reconciliation uh, first. Not saying that you don't get around to racial reconciliation. I think there's still a need for that. Sure. But I think reconciliation has to be the starting place, mm-hmm. and to figure out what that looks like here and like what needs to be done, where can it be done. I think you have to have an eye to see where divisions are. Um, And I think, I mean, not just here, I think any context, if you're wanting to know, you know, where where is the need for reconciliation? um, What does that work? What should that work look like? Look for the divisions in whatever community, whatever city, whatever country. Um, And here, even though I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, like in the South back home, you know, there's a very clear, you know, racial reconciliation is one of the two primary, you know, needs there. Right. But here, I would say, like, tribalism yeah. is, from my uh, limited experience, mm-hmm. uh, probably the biggest. Right. Um, because it's something that you see when it is election time, mm. is a, you know, very clear line that's drawn. And even the political things are tri- are actually tribal. Right. Um, and so it overlaps. It pours into both of those streams. So by tribe, but then also uh, by political party. Right. And so I think that tribalism, you know, um, is something that the one of the biggest needs for reconciliation here in Sierra Leone. 
but then also um, aside from that I think when you look at socioeconomically mm-hmm. there's also a big need yeah. uh, for reconciliation there um, between the rich and the poor right because exactly there is a huge gap right right I mean huge gap Very huge, yeah. between rich and poor right yeah right and I think when talking about tribalism so I wrote down a, a kind of some definitions that I feel like are helpful mm-hmm. and so okay um, teach us teacher one of the the definitions I wrote down is race so race is a social construct a group or lineage of people who share a certain distinct physical traits so when you're talking about tribalism that actually could be racial reconciliation you're talking about bridging the gaps of um, and working across tribes that that is across race versus like I think sometimes people mix up race and ethnicity or Mm -hmm. use those words together and ethnicity as defined by I'm not really quite sure these are a a working definitions that I used to teach a class several years ago, but ethnicity is a race of people sharing a common culture, history, or values. So we're talking about the ethnic group of all of Sierra Leone potentially, Mm -hmm. and then the racial, I don't know. I could be wrong. There's so many things I could be wrong about, but I think racial reconciliation does. It is tribalism. It is working cross tribal lines, just like Charles said. Um, But you're right. The disparity of, of class is a huge deal here Mm. and then I think I don't necessarily know what to do about this problem and I think maybe I potentially am a part of it but there's some somebody's got to say something about the fact that all the people coming to do the work are all white right (laughs) even if they're not all American versus you know I mean Charles being kind of distinctly different in that way and when people found out that he does not have any kind of connection to Sierra Leone with his roots people are confused on why he's here right so I think there's something to say there I'm not quite sure what Mm -hmm. what it is Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I will say this wasn't really asking your question but or answering your question but I feel like one it's been super super helpful for Charles and I to be an interracial couple here Mm. because it has allowed us to have kind of an opposite um, experience. So for the first time in our life, I'm the only one who looks like me in most of the spaces that we're occupying. Right. Um, And I am the one who is potentially not here for the right reasons. I'm the one that people are suspicious of traditionally in the spaces that we're occupying here versus that being the complete opposite of America where everyone is always asking why Charles is occupying the space that he's in. So I will never know what it means to be a person of color and I will never know what it, it means to have those that experience But I'm glad that these two years have allowed us to have some kind of shared experience on what it could feel like. And I'm particularly thankful for we we are adopting a Sierra Leonean uh, girl. And so she's going to be 100 percent African. And just the fact that in her spaces, when we move back to America, she will potentially be the only one. Right. Who is like her so that we can all have had that experience at some point in our life. Right. Feels like will be an important kind of cornerstone of our family. I don't know how that'll play out yet. Right. But I acknowledge the fact that it's significant work that's happening like right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to be sure to add this part in while we're on, you know, reconciliation yeah. in Sierra Leone. Yeah. Um, I know we both would say this, but I think that it is imperative that that work is owned by, led by right. um, Native people. Right. Um, and I, I mean, Allie essentially said it earlier when she was talking about Young Life. You know, she said that she was just there making cookies and felt like it was a work that should have been by African-Americans. Right. Um her position, her responsibility was to empower them. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is the same for this, for right. reconciliation here in this country, um, that Sierra Leoneans ought to be empowered right. to do that. At the forefront uh, of that work. And support it, right, right, in, uh, in that work. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, my little fraction of time in this country 
even if it's five years, right. you know, the things that I've seen and, and experienced, even if they can be validated by a Sierra Leonean, mm-hmm. I still don't know. Right. Um, so I think it, again, is really imperative that it's something that they're, they're the experts. They're the ones who are uh, in the position to, to identify accurately what, what the issues are. Like for us, we might see what's above the surface, but they're going to know yeah. What's at the root of these things? Right. Um, what's going to be the most effective means of working towards this? Right. Um, across, you know, tribes and whatever. Uh, so, yeah, so I think that that's a very big part of the puzzle that, you know, we need to be aware of. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Okay, so that is the end of our conversation, the first half of the conversation. One of the things that I did not do at the front end that you need to know is that Ali and Charles have been called back home to the United States. They have uh, finalized their adoption with their little girl, Ella, and they are back in Tennessee for now, really kind of transitioning back. Of course, what happened was they moved home in February and then Corona hit in March. So it's been quite a year for them. We re- we recorded this like last August, I believe. So it's not been too long ago. It's been, it's been quite a year for them. So uh, anyway, I hope you come back next week for the rest of this conversation. Uh, we're going to start where we left off and it, then it'll get passionate, exciting. I remember the conversation. It, it gets so insightful. Um, some of the things that Charles has to say. So I think you'll really enjoy next week's conversation. Check the show notes um, for definitions. And then I will also uh, be adding my own resources there too. Y'all stay safe, stay inside. Love to all of you.